Instagram is a great place to look at art, but it's a terrible place to make art. Welcome. I'm Doug Casina. I'm an artist, a gallerist, a curator, and a collector. And this is Artbound, where we deconstruct the myths and misconceptions of the art world. We have the conversations here with artists that aren't going to be found anywhere else. In this episode, we're going to be talking about art in the digital age. And I have two really amazing artists here to talk with me about it. First is Dina Brodsky, and she's joining us from her studio in Boston. Hi, Dina. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Dina is a contemporary realist miniature painter and curator. Uh, She did her undergrad at UMass in Amherst and an MFA from the New York Academy of Art. She is a self-proclaimed social media witch. And in addition to her very successful career as an artist and uh, curator, um, she has a really amazing workshop um, that's providing artists insight into how to really use social media. Uh, I actually signed up for it this morning. I suggest you do the same. She's also the founder of the Museum of Miniatures, which currently only exists Uh, online, um, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit too. And I also have Annie Phillips, who is joining us from Denver, Colorado. Hi, Annie. Hi, Doug. Annie is a multimedia artist and art director. Um, She was the very first person to join on for Meow Wolf Denver and was instrumental in building out their roster of artists, uh, not only for the Denver exhibit, but beyond that as well. She has worked with over and managed over 1,300 artists through her company, IRL Art. Um, Her passion about artist sustainability, technology, and accessibility kind of all comes together in a new project that she just launched earlier this week, which is IRLArt.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Like I said, it's an incredibly big topic that we're going to try to dive into today. It's what is the impact that the digital world has had on art. Um, The first thing that I want to really look at is the kind of ideas around social media and how we're viewing art. What does it mean that people are looking at art on their phones and not necessarily in the context of galleries and museums. Uh, you know, I think there's kind of pluses and, and negatives to it. Uh, Dina, I know that you have, God, 400,000 followers on social media, and this is one of your, uh, you know, kind of specialty interests. What do you think that uh, the effect of looking at artwork on social media has had on the industry? Um, you know, let me just start by saying that I um, hate social media, which is kind of ironic for someone who runs, you know, Instagram for artists workshops. And um, I'm also incredibly grateful to social media for basically allowing me to make a living. Basically, Instagram specifically for artists and for galleries and for, you know, curators, basically anyone dealing with images it's the most useful business tool ever. And it's basically, it's so useful and it's such a good tool that it's worth dealing with social media, which I overall, which, which I continue to hate. It's done both a lot of good and, you know, some amount of bad. If used correctly, 
you can tell I've, I've probably drunk a little bit of my own Kool-Aid here. <laughs> a lot of people go into painting and, you know, because they like being in their studio all day long, making impractical, compulsive things. And so for me, um, social media and Instagram specifically has been something that allows me to spend as much of my time as possible doing that rather than trying to network and going to gallery openings and trying to meet directors. And Doug, you seem really cool, but I, I, I've overall found the gallery scene very, very intimidating and kind of anxiety inducing. One thing that I'm really interested in is, you know, kind of this idea around the feedback loop of social media. Do you think that artists directly change their work or how they're what they're presenting based on how many likes they're getting well it's so addictive and there's basically teams of scientists working on this very question how to make it progressively more addictive and how to make that feedback loop something kind of almost ir irresistible ideally artists would just change the way they present their work rather than the, you know, the work that they actually make. But I think, unfortunately, sometimes it leads to people actually changing the kind of work that they make, um, you know, but be, because they get addicted to the feedback loop. Annie, you work with 1,300 artists. Have you noticed that they specifically are making works that they think are going to play well on social media? I, gosh, I don't even know where to start with all this. So, my company, the irony has not been lost on me as we're going through a global pandemic that my company is called IRL, which I think I have very intentionally tried to embrace this feedback loop of one, taking these really juicy, saturated, visually captivating content experiences that are on social media and trying to reproduce those experiences in real life and be able to then you take the selfie, it goes back onto social media, right? You're creating these kind of Instagram museum moments. And that's so much of my work. And I, I struggle with it because I know how much it influences me. And I get this deep anxiety a lot of times of, Am I following the right trends? Am I creating work that is, you know, creating a new aesthetic, a new idea, these kinds of um, chasing that, that kind of social media feedback loop constantly. And so I, I catch myself a lot in trying to understand how to break out of that as well um, with my personal art, as well as with like my management projects where I'm managing a lot of artists and trying to collaborate through projects. And so, you know, I remember I was doing 3D printed art, a lot of uh, product design for a while. And I stopped because I felt like I was just making products I knew that would sell. And I was having uh, trouble with that. You know, at some point, I think I threw up my hands and I was like, I can't help it. This is what people want. This is what my clients want. You know, I, I do a ton of client work where clients specifically want to create moments that they know are going to land on Instagram. It's tough. And I try to embrace it, but I also put my own spin on it and try to create things that are still meaningful to me and still interesting. But it's difficult. It's this weird paradox. Do we kind of water down what we look at because of homogeny 
um, you know, because it, we're kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to, okay, I'm just going to say it, like, because we're dumbing down to, like, kind of the base thing that plays for people. You know, is it this idea of, like, you know, the cartoon versus the novel? You know, what's going to resonate with the you know, a general public versus people who are really, you know, kind of engaged with the media that we're putting out there. Like one of my initial pushbacks with this is we're looking at work on our phones so much, you know, with the gallery, what I'm doing is I'm trying to create an environment for people to, you know, disconnect for a second where they make this act of contrition by walking through the door of the gallery and saying, I'm here to have an experience. And I know like Annie, you really hit on part of that topic is part of what we've been doing is we're creating these experiences for real life, but then we're absolutely knowing that the way people are going to really engage with it is on social media. Yeah, it's, it's tough. So is social media like robbing us in some way from that experience? I've just tried to, I've struggled with the transition because ultimately I create these really captivating experiences that then people want a memento from and they end up buying art or wanting to support the project somehow. And it's been tough for me, honestly, to figure out how to navigate virtually because I'm an experiential artist and I work mostly with experiential artists and I've had some luck and we can talk about it later. Um, but I've been really involved in the blockchain art community and it's all online. And I have some really interesting insights and experience in working, uh, with a lot of virtual galleries and virtual things, but it's still tough for me because ultimately I love, in-person experiences and um i know that uh you would dina were alluding to this idea of like the gallery and directors you know like there's kind of this pretentiousness to it there's an inaccessibility to i i think people for me that's one thing i'm always aware of is that there's an intimidation factor to the way that people are engaging with artwork as it is you know like that people don't want to walk into the gallery and feel stupid because they don't know the vernacular of art when they're just there to really fall in love with something is is that where you're seeing really the benefit of social media is you know beyond you know it's creating a new accessibility for people who might not feel welcomed into the art world it basically, um, I mean, I, I spent the last 15 years in New York. I just moved to Boston. So both me and my sister are artists. And both of us have spent, you know, all of our 20s, you know, being emerging artists, being female emerging artists, working with galleries in New York. And honestly, what happens to a lot of emerging artists is that they get completely trampled, right? Um, and a lot of galleries are, you know, it, you know, it's, it's a power dynamic between artists and galleries has always been in favor of the gallery for as long as there have been galleries, right? Unless you're maybe some sort of superstar showing at Gagosian where you, you have control. The, um, and one of the things that I like about social media is that it's been the only thing in the last hundred years that has kind of shifted the power dynamic from the gallery. And I know that you own a gallery, but you also seem like you're kind of a unique representative of you know the, the species, right? The, um, and it shifted the power dynamic back to the artist. I actually think that there's more good art being made right now than ever before. 
Um, and I, I don't think it's, you know, what you were saying earlier about the lowest common denominator. Uh, there's a lot of just catchy kind of stuff that, you know, it, you know, gets created specifically for social media. But the artists I work with tend to be academically trained because that's my own background. And they're much like me, not very hip, I think. And so what I teach them is just how to tweak their presentation to um, basically please the Instagram algorithms. There's an artificial intelligence that's kind of in charge of uh, how, you know, how many people see each post and, you know, of, of the ones who are following you already and people who weren't following you at all. And I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's a way to get really serious art, you know, serious non-hipster art that otherwise wouldn't have really been seen by anyone in front of more uh, more eyes than ever before. And a lot of those eyes will be 15-year-old kids in, you know, foreign countries, right? The, um, <laughs> the, which is great. I, but, but I think, you know, th there's just more people looking at art who wouldn't have had an access to either galleries and wouldn't have had access to a good art education either. And I feel like there's more people learning. There's more people looking at stuff. And I think there might even be more people buying, but a lot of them might be buying straight from the artists um, rather than going through like the, you know, like, like the, the gallery was always, you know, it's traditionally a middleman, right? Um, and so galleries have been, I mean, I think a lot of them have been struggling, but a lot, and it feels like you're one of them, have actually been adapting and have been coming up with new things. And basically Instagram, which is, I think, you know, been the platform that's been most useful for artists. It doesn't have to be basically a mediocre experience, you know, experience of, you know, like, yes, we would all prefer to look at look at art in real life, but there's some things that social media can give us, uh, you know, a gallery and a museum actually can't, um, such as the ability to look into an artist's sketchbook. Like most people wouldn't be able to do that in real life unless, you know, the, you know, the artist personally, whereas you can look at an artist, you know, flipping through a sketchbook on Instagram, or you can see part of their process. You can see what their studio looks like. It basically, it doesn't have to be kind of, you know, a poor experience. It, it'll just be a different one. Uh, I, I absolutely agree that that's the biggest thing that's changed from social media is your access to artwork, your access to the artist directly. And I, I Annie, I'm hoping that you can uh, kind of give me some insight on this because your whole company is about creating access to artists for as like, these are artists that might be able to be used for your project. It's kind of a forward-facing uh, accessibility for them. Does that eliminate, you know, kind of your more traditional role as an art director? I mean, what does that do to our roles as curators of galleries of, you know, how does that accessibility change what we look at? Right. And I've, I've thought a lot about discovery, searchability, accessibility, the algorithm and relationship to social media and how we overcome it in our processes of having application processes and curating and even developing an audience. Because, you know, right when you post on social media, at least for me, it's uh, when you don't have these in-person events and different things, it's really hard to build an audience or find ways. And 
we're certainly figuring it out with podcasts and different ways of finding new ways to connect and grow audiences. But are you vetting the work that then comes on to the site and vetting those artists and saying, this is stuff that I think is up to the standard that I want to put in front of my clients. And for me, like, again, this is maybe my own ego talking as well, mm -hmm. that I feel like, you know, as a gallerist, I do so much of that. But for me, I think that's an important role of the curator or the gallery or the museum is kind of, you know, saying that these are things that feel important in the moment for a platform like yours. Like, how do you vet an artist, you know, from this sea of stuff that you're presented with? You know, it'll be my least favorite painting that I hang in my big group shows that always sells first. And so I personally am forgoing a lot of my personal taste and personal bias and allowing direct artist to client connections to happen and flourish, because I think that people should be empowered to make their own creative decisions as a client and to and artists to be able to find clients that are a good match for them and not have these gatekeepers in the middle uh, clouding that up as much. And that that's just my personal opinion. And Doug, how, how, do, you, how, do, you, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, I, I have, again, it's kind of the opposite of what I do, right? Um, but I, I love that approach. I, and I think it's empowering in a lot of ways. One thing I've noticed is, you know, I work with a lot of corporate consultants. I work with a lot of advisors. There's a lot of people who don't feel confident about the way that they look at art or choose art when they hire somebody to make those decisions for them, right? And so I, I also really understand how powerful that role is. You know, it's it's. And you can also do that on the site, but I also like that idea too of being able to search and find an art director that represents you and your values and your style more coherently. Because I think that um, just like, for instance, if there was a, if for my platform, I was the art director in every scenario for every project that comes through it. I just don't feel like that is going to be the most authentic and genuine uh, way to get great art experiences out there for everyone. And I love the idea of you know, a client coming to the platform and being able to find an art director that's similar to their uh, representation, whether it's a, a, you know, a black art director that's in Philly that is, you know, working in the community that that client wants to tap into more. And so being able to like make those connections is more important to me than me making those uh, heavy handed creative decisions for clients. It's funny. I, I, I mean, I think I started curating shows specifically so that um, because I felt like the corner of the art world I come from is so underrepresented and under, you know, especially 15 years ago, it was much more underrepresented than it is right now. The, you know, kind of it's the, the, the classically trained contemporary realist people that, um, that, you know, spent 10 years trying to acquire the kind of skills that, you know, maybe someone had in the Renaissance. And um, I felt like I could, you know, find opportunities for them to show. And right now the art world has changed so much. And I think partially due to social media and these people, ha a lot of them have created their own platforms and their own galleries. And I no longer feel like they're underrepresented. But um, when I put shows together, I think I was almost the opposite of you. Like, like I only based the decision for each artist. It was 
do I think this is good work? And I realized that that was only one person's opinion, um, but it was entirely, you know, kind of apolitical. And, you know, I didn't care how famous that person was or how little known they were. It was just, do they make work that I feel like should be seen? Me, you should one day, if the world ever opens up again, have a drink and combine our combine our digital world superpowers, and probably you know sp- it would probably spontaneously like short circuit Denver. <laughs> yes. It's funny because as you're talking about this, I'm looking back at the way that I've found artists for the gallery, and a lot of them have been you know through social media, through Instagram. The exhibition I have up right now in the gallery from this amazing artist out of LA, his name's Kin Gun Min. I found his work initially on Instagram. And it certainly is something that when artists are sending me links to their work, I look at their Instagram. It's part of the way I vet an artist. Absolutely. Do you look at, do you look at it before their website or after their website? Uh, you know, it all really depends on the way that the work was submitted to me or not. Um, if I look straight to Instagram or not, but it's something that I absolutely check out. And do you, and do you look at their work or do you, um, how much does the size of their following matter? It, it's kind of unfortunate, but I feel like that's what a lot of galleries look at right now they're they're you know they're kind of they look at so much work and then they're like well what's you know does they bring their own own audience to the table uh, sorry and you're a gallery director so i just you know felt like i should gr- grill you on this on your podcast <laughs> that's exactly why we're here and it's also so i can like discover my own biases on all of this you know like again i've done exhibitions in the past that i knew that were gonna like play well on social media i just did this during the lockdown for the the pandemic i hired billboard trucks that i uh, printed out enormous reproductions of artwork that were eight feet by 18 feet And it became very evident to me after a little bit, even though I was having these go around, you know, the neighborhoods that were in lockdown with, you know, with the idea that people could see art in real life. I also knew that the way that they were really going to engage with it was on social media. So, you know, as a business, I absolutely need to know that you know, not to look at art just as a product, but yeah, is there an audience already existing there? Am I working with an artist that has, you know, a a history of sales? I, you know, I sometimes equate it to, you know, like a clothing store or something. You know, if you have a Levi's and you have all these people who already wear Levi's, you know, it's not a, it's not a bad thing to carry Levi's, but if it depends on what kind of brand and what kind of, you know, store you have. Is, do you see a, a correlation between people's sales histories and their social media presence when you're looking at artists or, you know, do you sometimes determine one or the other? Or? Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a really great correlation to that. I know that like... be kind of interesting. Certainly. Uh, with, for the data science. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I think there is going to be some of that out there. And I think it's, again, I also know that all of these things kind of interplay. You know, if an artist is seen at a big art fair like Art Basel and has some breakthrough work, they're going to have an increased number of social media followings just from that. So they start kind of playing within itself. So I, you know, within the gallery world, all of our sales are not driven from social media by any stretch. We have other online platforms that do the the heavy lifting for that versus Instagram. So, you know, do we sell some work occasionally on Instagram through the gallery? Yes, but our other online platforms are much more significant. 
So, um, and, and is it the online platforms that are, so I, I was actually going to basically ask the same question as Annie, because from what, from what I know, actually artists with a large social media following, it's not correlated to the number of clients they have. All it means is that they're very good at using this particular platform. Um, it doesn't mean it, you know, it, it, like, it doesn't mean that they're famous and written. And I'm actually kind of a prime example of that. I feel like, like, like I've had this huge following for a while and maybe only, only during the last two years have I started making some sort of, you know, living, living from it. Before that, it was just a huge social media following. Um, and I feel like there's people out there who don't have a following at all, but they have real life clients and, you know, re real life collectors who've been kind of following them for years, collecting their work for years, et cetera. Uh, but they don't know how to use Instagram at all because, you know, frankly, a lot of them are older and this is like a very, you know, um, Instagram is meant for teenagers to people in their early 20s and all of the kind of changes that they implement in the algorithm are intuitively understood by very, very young people, uh, and which is not actually correlated to having a long art career, right? <laughs> like chances are you haven't by 24. <laughs> there are certainly a lot of blue chip artists who don't have social media profiles. That's kind of an interesting uh, way of looking at it, too. Uh, you know, so I, I think you just kind of hit on something just because you have a lot of likes doesn't mean that that artwork is necessarily moving in kind of the art world commerce. We're, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, another place that I really am interested in is talking about like copyright and digital authenticity. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. One thing that I realized during the break is all of us here are artists and curators. And I think that that's, uh, you know, kind of an interesting perspective because we're both looking at not only our own practice and how it's been affected by digital media, but it's also the way that we consume and then distribute artwork uh, through that same network. Does that mean that we've also changed kind of the ways that we're able to make livings? Um, through kind of curation and other things by looking through social media, by going through uh, digital content. I mean, obviously with Annie, uh, your whole business is uh, evolved around that. Yeah, it's been interesting because we just launched this big marketing campaign and I expected it. I mean, and it has you know, some metrics of positivity. And, uh, but then, you know, I get a phone call about a new, uh, client job request and it's just a word of mouth recommendation. And he had no idea about my marketing campaign or anything I was doing online. So I feel like I'm still trying to figure out how to break that code in a lot of ways, because so much of my work is just in like really good in-person relationships and building from, uh, working together and making things happen in, in real life. So I'm still trying to 
crack the matrix. Well, and we kind of alluded to this before the break that there are some really well-selling artists who, you know, maybe don't have any kind of their personal social media accounts or are working with that for their own way of making a living. Whereas uh, you had mentioned, you know, that social media was a little bit of a game changer for, for your income. Um, absolutely. I um, wouldn't be able, I mean, I'm a single parent uh, with two kids in daycare, which is, I don't know, <laughs> expensive and emotionally draining. But uh, the, uh, but, but I, I actually, I wouldn't be able to provide for them the way that I feel like they should be provided for without social media. Um, so for me, it not only, I also make very, very time consuming and not particularly practical art where, you know, every gallery I've worked with is always like, well, we can't really pay the rent selling teeny tiny things that, uh, you know, that don't take up very much wall space. But I, I actually recently, I mean, and I'm very grateful for all that. And um, I very recently had a kind of life-changing experience with, with social media. I run a number of Instagram accounts for galleries and for our art institutions. And for me, it was almost like talking to the artificial intelligence, like talking to the matrix. And I was always a little skeptical of that. I was always just like, well, I know what the algorithm wants, but for me, it all felt like numbers. And then kind of a, I don't know, like a second cousin of mine reached out to me a few months ago and she was trying to put together a $2.1 million fundraising campaign for like her best friend's child in, in Russia to get this medication that this you know baby needed in order to live. They had like, you know, a team of volunteers working on this and she asked if I could help. And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I could like put it up on Facebook. And I did and no one cared. And then I was like, well, I could do better than this. I could have like a studio sale. And I did that and it raised a little bit of money, but not, you know, not $2.1 million. And then I created a hashtag and I created like a, basically like an Instagram you know, fundraising campaign that went completely viral and it was supposed to kind of appeal to the, you know, it was an appeal to the companies that made the $2.1 million, million drug to save the baby's life. And artists started, I was expecting like a hundred artists to participate and that happened the first maybe two days. And I had this gallery in New York that was putting together an exhibition of the work curated for this hashtag to kind of save the baby. It's called Birds for Sophia and it's a bird painting show to kind of, you know, basically to save this baby's life. And I mean, we were expecting to maybe raise some amount of money and raise some amount of awareness, but it totally went viral and, you know, over a thousand artists ended up participating and the baby eventually ended up, you know, like an anonymous donor came forward and bridged the gap to kind of, you know, cover as a medication gap, which was $1.5 million or something like that. And so the baby got her drug and she's going to live a totally normal life. But that's when I realized that all of these people on Instagram, that a part of my brain was very kind of, I don't know, jadedly feeling like we're just, you know, statistics like likes or whatever. Each one of them was a real person and each one of them cared enough to do this and cared enough to kind of both spread the message, donate some money, draw a bird, which is what we're asking them to do, et cetera. And I had this moment of being, oh my God, these are all real people. It's kind of incredible. It's not just the matrix. That's wonderful. It's not just the matrix. Like every person that clicks like on, you know, Annie's campaign is a real person whose life is as complicated and as important as as our own and that's kind of a there's a word for that actually that my podcast co-host taught me a little while ago it's called sonder sonder is the moment of realization is that everyone's life is as complex as yours 
Um, and that's where I think social media exists at its absolute best is in those type of moments where we can really connect with each other. And, you know, with art being that bridge, that catalyst for that conversation, that, you know, real base way for us to kind of connect with each other through a nonverbal way. But then, you know, as we explore where social media isn't at its best, which (laughs) is, you know, through all the negative comments, uh, through all the trolls, through all of these ways that people are then, you know, gaining this information and that they feel like they are only talking to this matrix and not to another person on the other end of it. It also starts talking about then what do we look at for use of these images of these, you know, these items that are created? Because I, I mean, I, I feel like everybody's probably taken an image from, you know, an online source and used it for something else. Um, without crediting the artist um, or they look at it and it starts to become, you know, this is an idea around ownership, you know, of artwork and digital media too. Have you had somebody, Dina, like use your platform or your artwork in a way where you didn't approve of it, that it was theft in some sort? You know, so I'm, I'm mostly, you know, I have that, I have a large following. Um, I like, there's a lot of people that will just, you know, make, you know, they'll literally copy a piece of art that I make. And I mostly find it flattering and kind of charming. I feel like I, I've always had a bad case of imposter syndrome where I'm like, oh my God, I'm a real artist. Someone wants to copy my work. That's amazing. And there's one time a few years ago where what you're talking about happened. And it was an artist who she probably had kind of a much better career at that point than I did. It was before I had a large following. And she just kind of took a little bird painting that I made and she posted it on her account. And um, someone brought it to my attention. I was just sort of like, eh, you know, I don't really care. And then a few months later, someone else brought it to my attention. I was like, I don't really care. And then like the third time I started reading her artist bio and I was like, oh God, she's, you know, she sounds terrible. (laughs) But I I put up with it as basically just one of the necessary evils if it wasn't worth fighting about. But a few years after that, this um, BuzzFeed writer reached out to me uh, because apparently she wasn't just doing that to me. She was doing that to artists who were much more established than me. And they were like, well, how do you feel about this? And I guess the reason it blew up so much was because um, she claimed credit for an MGMT album cover. (laughs) I was like, what a a horrible person. Why can't you make her own art? (laughs) Well, and that becomes like, for me, I think there's a lot of gray area there. Because first of all, isn't everything that you post on social media, doesn't Instagram own it anyway? So you don't actually own those images anymore? Like I look at like Richard Prince and, you know, and and for me, like, I don't have a problem with what Richard Prince did at all. Right. I have thought about him. Um, I I generally don't have a problem with how it all becomes public property. Uh, What made me kind of, I I, I guess what made me a little bit mad about her is that she photoshopped the brush. She didn't photoshop the image. She photoshopped the brushes that were in the painting uh, closer together because I guess that made it feel like it was more hers. And I was like, what, 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 it, like, why would you even spend it? it why would you <laughs> spend any sort of effort doing that? <laughs> and this gets us to this idea of what is authenticity in digital media. And this is really Annie's specialty too, because I know that 
because of our use of digital media as a viewing platform, there's a whole, you know, we start looking at GIFs as artwork. We start looking at video as artwork and all of these things that were only made to be consumed on these digital platforms. And that's a little scary of a place too, is how do you then have authenticity with uh, that digital artwork. And I, Annie, I know you have some really interesting ways that people have approached this. Yeah. So last October, I was asked to curate a gallery for a hackathon in Denver called ETH Denver. And it's the Ethereum community, which is a cryptocurrency on blockchain. But what's interesting about Ethereum is that for every transaction that happens on the Ethereum network, there's a smart contract attached to it, which is somewhat of a ledger system. And then all sorts of programmability can happen. So there's a lot of platforms that have popped up in the last, I would say, two or three years. The one platform that I sell my art on, Super Rare, it's really interesting. So for instance, every time I so you put the art up and it's for auction, and then when it resells, every time it resells, it's ledgered. The history's all there on the piece of art, but you also get credited 10% of each cell in perpetuity. So for forever. And so, and each piece of art on super rare is one of one. So you post your piece of art, even if you sell prints of it or sell it in other places in real life, as long as it's not tokenized anywhere else. So that's the process of authenticating the digital art as creating a token for it. And this is using the same process that people use for cryptocurrency. Yes. Like for Bitcoin, that's what the blockchain kind of idea is with it. Yes. So it's using that same tokenization process. So it's been really incredible for me because as a digital artist, I never really printed my art or sold it. And then these platforms started emerging and it felt really in line with my work to be able to keep it digital. So um, one of the things I did in the gallery, I displayed most of the artwork on tablets. So you didn't purchase the tablet, you just get the tokenized version of the artwork. And I printed out a lot of limited edition, one of one archival prints of a lot of the artwork as well, if the artists were interested in that. But nine times out of 10, the people who were purchasing the artwork were really uh, neutral about the prints. They were like, okay, thanks. But they were way more interested in the digital version of the art. And uh, one of, I had a really interesting conversation with an artist, Virgin Del Crypto, who was there. Uh, he's from Montreal, or he's from Puerto Rico originally, but lives in Montreal. And he just uh, curated the Vancouver Biennial and they did everything on blockchain this year. He lost a, a substantial art collection of uh, original paintings in the hurricane that happened in Puerto Rico a few years ago. And he said the most interesting thing to him about blockchain and his art collection there is that it's it will never go away. It will never get damaged. It will never get lost, stolen, or anything like that. And um, one of the things I'm really interested in about it is that it's taken um, the auction platforms that have been mostly reserved for uh, 
highbrow fine artists through Christie's and Sotheby's and things like that and made it completely open source and accessible to any artist to be able to have a sales record and access to hosting auctions and being able to prove your value and all of those things. Wow. Like, I feel like this is a whole nother podcast that we could dive into yeah, with this. Really because I know. You, it's should, not only... you should have Annie on a separate one where she just talks about this. <laughs> well, and every time I learn more about it, it just breaks my brain further. And I think because of my philosophy background, there is so much, so many philosophical things being explored around ownership, too. So there's this really fascinating platform that has emerged within the last year that explores a lot of really complex things. It's called async, but essentially I'll give an example, but 12 artists all created a work, uh, a, a new interpretation of the last supper and they all did their own character for this piece. But as a patron, as someone who's coming to buy this work, you can buy the pieces of the art separately. So you could buy one artist layer of the piece. So it's exploring fractional ownership of artwork. Um, it's exploring collaboration in artwork and being able to still have a collaborative work like that up for auction. And it's also exploring, uh, programmability within the artwork. So it's really interesting. So for instance, one of the characters, you could say every Thursday, if the temperature is above 70 degrees in Stockholm, the color changes. Wow. Or it cha and you can get really tedious with how you create those programmability aspects. And then that unlocks when the patron owns the piece, they get to turn those functions on and off and have a role in how the artwork actually looks. And uh, so that piece of artwork sold for $85,000. And it's been a really healthy new way for artists, especially digital artists to build community and to create, uh, make some money really. Annie, where would be a website that you would direct people towards that uh, you're really fascinated with if they wanted to learn more about uh, kind of the digital platforms that you're talking about? I think Super Rare is probably the most popular one right now. However, I really am excited for my friend's uh, Virgin's new platform that he's created called Ephemera because it's actually for gallery owners. So for myself, it's really exciting because I could have a profile on there and get artists on there who don't know how to set up a wallet or exchange cryptocurrency or understand anything about the process and I can represent them on their on their behalf and be able to get them access to these new collectors and people who are really supporting this market without them having to understand how it all works. And Dina, where's your favorite online source for art? Honestly, probably Instagram. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that is where I look at most of the art that I look at. So one thing that I, I would actually um, like to say, you know, as like a parting thing is um, for artists, 
not for people who want to look at art because um, if, if I, I feel like the more people stay off the internet and stay off social media, <laughs> the better actually. The, and which is kind of, I, you know, I, I fully realize the irony of this, that um, I interviewed this artist a while ago called Paul Houston, who might actually be from Denver and he's, he's amazing. And, um, but there's something that he said that stuck with me, which is that the way he feels making art you know, working on his gorgeous sketchbooks, the way he feels truly in the moment and connected to everything around him is the exact opposite of the way he feels being on Instagram. And that's always stuck with me. And like in a way, mm. Instagram is a great place to look at art, but it's a terrible place to make art. It's, it's you know, it's a good way to present it. It's a good way to view it. Um, but I feel like it kind of almost interferes with the studio practice so much um, so yeah, that's, that's my, that's, that's my parting thing. Stay off Instagram. <laughs> I think that was a beautiful way to end it. And as a gallerist, um, I'm going to endorse that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's really wonderful that, um, we also have, you know, somebody whose company is in real life is the acronym for IRL talking about how we do digital art as well. And, uh, social media, uh, which self-proclaimed again, who is telling you to stay off social media. Thank you both again so much for joining me today. Um, what an amazing conversation. Doug, thank you so much for inviting me. And Annie, thank you so much for being here. I feel like you're awesome and I hope we meet in person one day. <laughs> yes, Doug, thank you so much. And Dina, it was such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you everyone for listening to the Artbound podcast. For more information about the guests and what we've discussed, go to artistnetwork.com slash artbound. You can also find ways to connect with me and the Artbound team. We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Artbound is an artist network podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by me, Doug Casina. Our producer is Daisha Clay, with audio engineering by Evan Rutherford. Director of podcasts is Jared Mayer. Executive producer for Artist Network is Scott Meyer. Trisha Waddell is the director of content. Sarah Van Patter handles all our marketing. And Vanessa Childers does all things digital. If you'd like more information on sponsoring or advertising on Artbound, go to goldenpeakmedia.com. I'm Doug Casina. Until next time.